Welcome to Exploring the Industry, where we find out what God's doing in the entertainment world. I get to interview Christians from various entertainment industries. They share their stories of faith and transformation with you and I. I'm hosting people from many different backgrounds to share what God is doing and where he's shown up most in their lives and their careers through their highs and lows. We're believing to influence the narrative of how Christians perceive what God's doing in the entertainment industry around the world. If a picture is worth a thousand words, their story is worth a thousand sermons. Come join the conversation and welcome to the show. William Paul Young is the author of the novels The Shack, Crossroads, and Eve, and recently released nonfiction Lies We Believe About God. He was born a Canadian and raised among a Stone Age tribe by his missionary parents in the highlands of West Papua New Guinea. The journey that Paul has lived through as one of the top authors in history has been both incredible and painful. His best-selling book, The Shack, tackles so many things that were real parts of Paul's story, including extreme losses and living with deep shame that only could be healed through a connection to God Today, we're going to hear about how God has used the novels as a platform that is building a grace-filled perspective with a worldwide audience. We get to explore how the story of the shack has also healed so many. We are also going to talk to Paul about his fascinating perspective about how he overcame things that so many Christians struggle with, but gave language for all of us to go on the journey to. Welcome to Exploring the Industry, and I'm here with a friend of mine, Paul Young, who I absolutely love. And so I love good you to too. Have you here. Uh, it's Thanks awesome to be here. No, seriously. I'm so honored. Absolutely. I'm way more honored. Let's have an honor competition. No, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> you, I'd you win. I'm older. No, no. <laughs> I would definitely win that you've honored me more for no. sure. Cause you've, you've contributed in our lives a couple of times. And I've been significant. And a lot of my friends that we've kind of mutually loved on that just watch them break through in their life because you stopped and you spent time with them in such a real way. And so a lot of times when people see people entering in the entertainment industry or, you weren't even trying to do that. You were just no. writing a book. Right. Um, but the success of it, people get a glimpse behind the scenes and they see just a normal life. But when we get a glimpse behind your life, it's like you're this man who you really did go through a transformation that the book's about. Yeah. And we, those of us who see behind, which is a lot of people in book signing lines or people who are in public who come up to you or whatever, they get a really different experience with you because you're trying to live out this transformed love thing that's amazing. Love disrupts. Yes, it does. I remember going through what do they call it when you do uh, when you do a movie uh, a junket. Yes, you know. So I was in one room, and Octavia was in one room, and Roddy Mitchell and uh, Tim McGraw. So I did what seventy four interviews in one day, I think, or sixty four oh. or something. But I hugged every person that came through that door. <laughs> <laughs> they only had four minutes with a with a one minute turnaround. And That's at the amazing. end of the day, I heard back through the grapevine. They came and said the report the reporters that came from all over the world. They said, yeah. Paul needs to teach these other actors how to do interviews. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, you know, because it's the it's, fact that you're warm and you're present, which is really a gift. And mm -hmm. I think, but it's a gift in the sense that you're, it's impartable because when you share, because now that you've had some of the books that are story-based come out, you've actually shared some books and you've shared a lot at even churches or public places where yeah. lots of different spaces you've shared about just a connected life of love. I mean, it's like really amazing what comes out of you. So I, I think that, you know, for me, we were talking about it behind the scenes with some of the team and they were saying, why do you think that God made this book one of the top books in history? Like, you know, 20, and how many have sold? 27 million? 23, 23 plus million? something. 23 plus million. And who knows how many Chinese versions? <laughs> <laughs> who knows how many downloaded versions, period. Yeah. I know that as an author, it's, it's amazing. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. I was in Dubai and they were like downloading all our books. I'm like, <laughs> Um, is there a way you pay for that? They're like, oh no, it's just on the site you subscribe to. No, it's to. free. <laughs> it's free. I'm like, oh. <laughs> but beyond that, I'm like, God bless them. They got them, you know, which is great. But I mean, God 
put this on and, and, and people resonated with something that was a different message because we've been given such a one filter of a message for how, especially the Christian expression of the message, you know, and it's just been so beautiful to watch the the landslide that is your life (laughs) onto the world. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) It's like, oh, wait. It's a snow. What is that called? So, so yeah. wasn't it Voltaire who said that no, no single snowflake feels responsible in an avalanche? Yes, that's what I was Avalanche. You are an avalanche. It's true though, and you, yeah, it's it's been amazing. So, I'm going to kind of go backwards though, because I'm going to go into the story, and I know your story okay. pretty well, just because we've talked about. Sure. I think you were the twelfth person I ever interviewed on a radio show we did for. I remember Christian, it was like the number one Christian radio station, and all of a sudden they said, "Will you do a show?" And we did all. Yeah, that was your last one, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, luckily we had a lot. No, but you actually it was like only the second or third time I think you you had shared publicly about right. a lot of the background of your story right. of where the shack came from. And I think we just ended up crying together. For like, we did with Sally, our friend from DreamWorks. Yeah. For like, I mean, I, I think I, I for a week, I was just kind of numb in a good way. Mm. Just like this was beautiful, like because I'd already read the story, and then I read it again right before the interview, and then I was like, oh my gosh! And at that point, that was the only book you had out, right? And I kind of want to go back either there or I'm going to talk about the publishing. I'm going to you decide as far as like because it was such a unique opportunity because you wrote this book not for the whole world. No, I wrote it for my kids. Yeah. And our youngest was 12 at the time, and we have six kids. So the oldest was 25. And um, and that was the only intention. That was the only outcome that I cared about, was that I had a, something to give them at Christmas that yeah. year that, it, that kind of showed in story form um, my journey. Because I'm Mackenzie, but I'm also Missy, the, the child who's yeah. murdered. And that had to do with some of the great sadness and the sexual abuse and stuff that was part of my childhood. And, um, but it was like, I want you to see, and they know because they know me. It's not like it was a big secret, Yeah. <laughs> but I want you to see um, a, uh, in imagery, the character and nature of the God who actually showed up and healed my heart, not the God that I grew up with. Cause I, yeah. I'm Western evangelical, modern evangelical fundamentalist holiness background missionary kid missionary preachers kid, yeah, yeah. I mean, first one yeah so you know total re- recipe for disaster <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was my world and and it took me till i was 50 years old wow you know people say how long did it take to write the shack and i tell them it took 50 years right because the, and it's the 50 years was the hard part writing yeah. the book was was pretty easy yeah it was just like jumping in a river that had been it's now time you know but um the 50 years of getting to the place where I felt finally whole enough to do this, that, that was a journey I will never want to do again. <laughs> and you did for kids, which you're going to have to look into your process then. Cause then there's questions. There's like, yeah, it's a deeper view. Cause I know some things about my parents. My parents are very vulnerable and very connected. And, but there's some, there's times in my different stages of life where I wanted to know different things where I was like, okay, wait, now I know how to ask questions because I've been through some life. Right. So I want to know on a different, like your 12 year old to 25 year old at the time would be way different in how they read so. the book. Yeah. And it was actually, I mean, I, I've thought about the book several times since then because you, you wrote it for them. And I thought, how am I communicating to my daughters about my love mm. and about my love for them, my love for God, my love for their mom. And it just really inspired me to think, what's my version of like, how am I going to give to them different installments of story that aren't just based on our conversations? Right. Which I think is one of the beautiful projects that 
I don't know. I just think like God looked at this and said, you want to give this beautiful gift, let me give it to the whole world. Right. As if they're all my children, which is, to me was huge. That's exactly right. That's exactly how I look at it from this side. It's as surreal today as it ever has been. Wow. I, I tell people that two things that they have to understand. One is that the first 15 copies that I made at Office Depot did everything I ever wanted that book to do. Wow. Because we had six kids and I have some, some friends, you know? Yeah. So eight copies went to us. Six kids and Kim and I, and then uh, the extras I just gave to my friends. And those copies that I gave to my kids did everything I wanted that book to do. The second wow. thing that's important is that everything that matters to me was in place before I wrote the book. Hmm. And that includes identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love. All in place. I was working three jobs. We were living in a little rental house of 900 square feet with four of our six wow. kids at home. And we were content. We were surrounded by enough and we had nothing in terms so of the funny. material stuff. So everything that mattered to me was in place. So the book, and thankfully this didn't happen in my thirties, which it couldn't have, but if something like this, and you think about the young athletes and you think about people who have oh, success yeah. young, oh, they, yeah. they don't have a frame of reference or a set of relationships in order to to be able to manage that. It just blows them up from the yeah. inside out. And, um, but it, I couldn't have written it until I was finally felt like I was whole enough to do it. Yeah. Um, so the book didn't give me any, you know, didn't give me more identity or more security. Those were resolved. Um, what it did uh, was give me an invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. Yeah. And when you get into people's stories, there are no strangers. And um, and it is holy ground. You get to watch uh, inside of a person's life because every every human being is a story. Yeah, you get to watch where God is burning away that which is not real, without harming anything that is. Yeah, and um, that's where you. I, I say, you know, I spend my life now walking around barefoot. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's wow, a beautiful what a statement. Thing. Okay, so your kids, they receive the book, they read the book. Well, they receive the book and say, oh, a book, thanks, Dad. Exactly. It's Christmas, right? How long did it take them to like engage it? It took sure them, different, for uh, different for each one, yep. Yeah. And it took them uh, some months. Uh, I remember uh, Andrew, who was 21 at the time and uh, studying uh, electrical, uh, he was mechanical engineering at Oregon State. And uh, he is now mechanical engineer with an MBA who is a Portland police officer. If you can. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. That's so funny. So, but uh, he's 21 years old. He calls me on the phone and he's bawling like a baby. Wow. And he references chapter 15, which is Festival of Friends. And, um, and in that scene, Mackenzie is standing on the hill with Sarayu, the Holy Spirit. And they're watching Jesus come into a, like a worship processional at a distance, which is how I felt a lot of my life about my relationship to mm. institutional Christianity. I was always barely in and hoping nobody would notice. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, you know, Jesus was over there with the really important people. Yeah. And from a distance, Mackenzie and Jesus catch eyes and, and Mackenzie hears him say, Hey Mac, I'm especially fond of you. Yeah. And my son so bawling on the phone, he goes, dad, I heard him say that to me. He says, I've been just weeping for two hours because I heard him say that to me. Well, wow. at that point, that's enough. Yeah. Just by itself. Yeah. I mean, it, it's everything I wanted that book to do. Well, and especially as a parent, because I mean, any revelation your kids get of <sighs> the nature of God's love through you yeah. is like the biggest win you ever have. That's yeah. like, that's your whole win in life. I mean, it's like, yeah. my wife's happy. My kids are happy. They have God. They have me. They have love that, you know, and it felt like yeah. the book did that. And then 
I kind of want to spin this off a little bit and we might go back to kind of the story that birthed the shack a little bit, but, but you became a very controversial figure overnight because I, which I love because all of a sudden you wrote a book that wasn't limited to the confines of Christian bookstores. It was everywhere. It was in airports. It was, it still is. It's everywhere. It's Walmart. Yeah. It's everywhere. And you didn't care what anybody thought. My identity was already intact. Exactly. But yeah. I mean, this is really different than a pastor who brings a theology book and is trying to in- introduce something. Yeah. You were just writing a story and right. just trying to get to the heart of people and God and the whole thing. It tells You're, you how disruptive story is. No, for it one is. Thing. It's, it's like one of my favorite things that's happened in our generation because, and I'm serious about that. And I've used this as like kind of a case study when we do some of our e- entertainment events and stuff or, or conferences because you instantly were able to have a voice that was outside of the authority and the norm. Yep. And you had the voice cross-culturally. So you had it in the world and in the church. Yep. And you had controversy in both places as well. How was that? This is what I would ask, because I love that point. But then when you look at practically for your family, how did your family navigate that? Was that hard for them? Um, Not, generally speaking, it wasn't hard at all. I mean, we just, we just saw it as a, as surreal. You're like, oh, this is so crazy. The only hard time, and Christians are the only ones that did this, is that when they realized that I had no secrets and I had no addictions and there's nothing that they could, you know, assassinate my character about except, you know, generally. And I had no reputation that I was trying to uphold because I'd already blown that up, you know. And <laughs> yeah. but yes. but they some of them went after my kids. That was hard. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's what hard. I was asking. Like, yeah, that's because people don't think about it like they a lot of people want the goal and and they've set the goal wrong because the goal is the product or the project or whatever. Yeah. But you set the goal of like, you were just trying to get healthy and give your kids a story. And so when, yeah. when you get into this place where all of a sudden you're a household name and Christians for sure, and then you're also very well distributed name for everybody else as well. And then people get mad at you. And I'm just like your family. I, I remember a couple of the stories and just your family was here and there would suffer from that. Yeah, they but did. you guys navigated it really well. It did. And it took some time too. And, uh, and, and, and there's been the redeeming genius in the middle of it that's mm. drawing full circles all the way back, you know, so there's been some restoration and some of that damage. Um, but uh, yeah, generally speaking, it was, it was a great, and it still is. We get to experience almost like a third party watching, right? Or, yeah. Because once the book took off, it had a life of its own. It just went in all kinds of different directions. Yeah. And we were just watching what was happening and getting the overflow of the storyline, you know, yeah. and you were saying earlier that um, the disruptive nature of story, uh, as opposed to say a nonfiction theological f- book, yeah. well, that's because we've learned to hide in our minds. We've learned to hide in Western rationalism. We we think that that's a place that we can find some control for, and we've divorced. And I'm talking more men than women have got mm-hmm. this issue, right? And we've mm-hmm. been trained this way. So when somebody brings a nonfiction rational you know, exposure of theology, the doorway is to the mind and only the mind. Story enters through the heart. And that's what happened with so many people who read The Shack. Their hearts blew up and then their minds engaged and they were in conflict themselves. And so part of what they did toward me was to take take it out on me. Oh, yeah. Because I I created the cognitive dissonance, right? Yes. Without even trying. I was in... um, um, Croatia informally adopted uh, the shack as their book of the decade. Ooh, and, that's awesome. Oh, my gosh. And so uh, the Ministry of Culture calls me and says, would you come talk to our country? It's very broken and hurt. 
So I did that. So I go, and the first thing that they did is they had a big open air meeting in Zagreb in the capital. And they said, we don't know how many people are coming because it's summer vacation and all that. Place was packed. And, um, and I, there was a, a panel of four PhDs and me, you know, and an interpreter, right? And to have this conversation for about an hour, and then they opened it up to the community. And hands went up all over the place. And wow. in the front row was a very distinguished man, uh, uh, beard goatee, beautiful hat, three-piece suit, uh, cane, right? And he raised his hand, and everybody else put theirs down. Oh, wow. Right? So I still don't know who he is. And, uh, but he, he stands up and he says, in English, and that was then translated in, uh, into Croatian, he says, um, you know, our country has been a country of, of revolution, and we've had a series of revolutionaries who have been trying to help us find a way to be free. He said, I've read everything you've ever written. And I consider you a revolutionary. Do you consider yourself to be a revolutionary? That's the question wow. that I'm asked, right? Wow. Like, I mean, that's not even on, yeah. It, so it's one of those moments where you know that the Holy Spirit is real. <laughs> because yeah. out of your mouth comes something that you've never thought of. In fact, as you're saying it, you don't even know where it's going, right? I and love those moments. I love those moments. And they, I think they happen all the time and we're just, you know, we, we're we not present enough to notice. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. Like, I'm really smart right now. <laughs> oh, and 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 I, I love it. I think the Holy Spirit does make us look good. Yeah. And and or as I was saying earlier, likes to reveal the truth about us even though we don't know what it is. Yeah. And um so that. in that moment, um I said uh no, I I don't consider myself to be a revolutionary. I consider myself to be a child and children are by nature revolutionaries. Yes. And oh, he, so he goes, yes. And the whole oh, place wow. just erupted. Right. Because it was the right response. And, uh, and it was like, I, I don't want an identity as a revolutionary. Yeah. I don't want an identity as uh, someone who divides the community of faith. I don't want, this is why I always talk about modern evangelicals as my people, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and so be careful how you talk about them kind of, you know, and, um, but as a child, I'm good with that, you know, and it took me 50 yeah. years to become a child. I'm not mm. going back to being an adult and I don't need that identity because in being a child, you automatically become a revolutionary. That's you so change I mean, the environment around being you. Being a child, you're a genius. Oh, all the time, all the time. But I come back to, you know, like that story is so perfect because we're doing this show. One of the reasons why we're doing this show is to have conversations that creates narrative for people because there's people who are starting to feel like, my purpose is to be a creator and they would love to write a book that a whole country would celebrate for a decade to be their cultural reference point for what that brings freedom, you know, that way. And I'm not saying that I'm not talking about the ambitious people who just want a project to be known, Sure, but there's people who are like, I want to, I have in me to write, I have in me to dance, I have in me to do whatever it is and to not just be a cog in a wheel, but to actually create, which is what you're talking about being a child and, and bringing some of this world that the world then, like, I, you know, I see different people who would see themselves in your story, not necessarily that they're trying to sure. get the fruit of it, but they're trying to have the impact because they want their life to have the significance. It's not the identity issue, but it's the, the sense of calling. But there is purpose. an issue of significance here. You know, yeah. significance is who you are, not what you do. Yeah. Right. So if you don't do the work to become the voice that, that you are, then you're, you're going to be chasing something that is ab absolutely a myth. You know, so let's go there though. Like, so talk about how do you, how do you do that work? How did you do that work? Oh, 
Okay, so... Because you actually talk about this really well. A lot, and I talk about it a lot. And let me back up and catch a couple little things sure. that, as you were talking that are important to me. One is that there's no such thing as a person who is not a creative. I agree. Okay. And and we want to create these categories so that we have a sense of identity from them. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing as somebody who believes that their vocation is their identity. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. Your identity is way more profound than that. Amen. You know, and so... <laughs> That's so, my first amen I've ever yeah. said. That's great. And so also, <laughs> if you have, if you are making your decisions based on an outcome that you perceive or that become a set of expectations, it will own you. Yeah. And, and not in a good way. No, just right? performance. Yeah, it, yeah. You'll end it. up in performance. Almost all comparison is false selves talking to each other. Hmm. Right. And so there is something about this movement inward. If, if you're going to work in, in whatever you put your hand to as a creative, that means every human being, mm -hmm. then who you are expresses that creativity in a way that no one else on the planet can. Yeah. And and if you're if you're gearing the value that you feel based on the outcome of your creativity, you're going to be stuck. It's never going to be enough. I yeah. guarantee you it will never be enough. And uh, and then you'll be at risk for anybody who else comes along that has something, you know, that sure. uh, that uh, may be in conflict or um competition. Yeah, it's the root of competition right, right there. Right, right. Which is so let me go to a story before I kind of dig into your question a little bit more. Um so uh, we're living in this little 900 square feet of space. With six kids. With six. Well, four of them four. were home. Two of them were in college. But Kim was working at the high school bakery two and a half blocks away and was bringing kids from the school to fit in of all course, of our little of empty spaces. Now, I'm working three jobs. I could walk to the train. And and um, and the book is just starting to take off. This is the fall of 2007. And never happened to me before, never happened since. But I snap awake in the middle of the night. Bam. And I'm just like. And Kim is sound asleep next to me. And it's as close to a visual kind of vision, right, that I've ever experienced. And it's, I, I literally felt like I was under a waterfall wow. of creative ideas, Oof. right? And each one lasted five minutes, you know, and so it was just like, and then it would stop. And well, it wouldn't even stop. It would flow into another one and another one. And about 25 minutes into this, the thought crosses my mind, I need to write this down, Right. And I'm not opposed to writing down ideas, but in yeah. this situation, that's not what this was about. So I said, I, I need to write this down. And instantly the waterfall stopped. Ooh, wow. And there was this dead silence. And that's when I heard the, heard the voice on the inside, right? That I've gotten used to, you know, like, all right, I know who's talking. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and God just says, Paul, that is the way you have been, right? You don't trust that this is a river. Mm. Oh, Oh, exactly. No, that's you, like you don't trust that this is a river. So you want to dam it up yeah. and you want to put it into well, little vials. And that's why people yeah. save their best ideas for too long. Oh my god. And they're afraid someone else is gonna steal them or they're if I mean I've given some of my best ideas away even just saying, I know it's a river. It's like it'll come go. again, but people are so afraid. Yeah, they going, they I'm think so they're gonna be able to tap God. Yeah. Right, like some, that, some. This is as good as it's going to get in my life. Because right, that's right. all. You know, this is the best thing I've ever experienced. Which is in indicating so that bad. you're gonna, you're trying to get some something out of it. Yeah. So he says, what you tend to do, you want to dam it up, and then you want to put it in little vials that you can sell in exchange for identity, worth, value, significance, mm -hmm. security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love. And it wow. crushed me. I'm, I'm laying in bed sobbing, like. Wow. 
oh, I've been so exposed, right? Yeah. Which is the journey inward. There has to be exposure and you have to become a truth teller. Like, mm -hmm. yes, that is what I've done. Yeah. And then um, I said, I won't do this anymore. I'm done with this. Right. And ever since then, every time anything that I do, it's like, this is a river. In fact, I was thinking about it this morning with a conversation that was happening. This is a river. And immediately the waterfall started again. Neat. And I just, I laid there under that waterfall probably for another hour before I fell asleep. And I've never tried to remember what those things were, but I've recognized them when they show up. Yeah. And two of them have shown up through somebody else. Oh, wow. And it's like, ha, yeah, I remember that. And, uh, but it was one of those just clarifying moments, right? So the journey for me was, you know, and I grew up as a performer because I'm a firstborn missionary kid, preacher's kid, you know, and, um, but, but between the great sadnesses of my childhood, my very difficult relationship with my father, who was an abusive disciplinarian between that, between the sexual abuse that started in the tribal culture. And then as a six-year-old going to boarding school and having big boys come at night and molest the little boys and, you know, um, and then finding out that I was white, which was a huge disappointment, <laughs> you know, that consciously, like, I don't even belong there because yeah. I surely didn't feel like I belonged in boarding school. Wow. Right. In fact, my first trip home to the compound from boarding school, I called my mother, aunt Betty, because her name's not Betty, but there were two women at boarding school named Betty white women. And one oh, of them's wow. name was Betty White. <laughs> oh my gosh. So how is a six-year-old process that, you know, white women are Bettys. So my mom was a Betty. Oh, and, gosh. um, but that's how disconnected I was. Yeah. So the shack then becomes imagery for the broken house on the inside, the soul that is busted, you know, the heart that is broken, but it's our soul. You can't run away from it. And mm. so that's where you begin to store all your secrets and your your addictions and you hate yourself, mm. but that's why you lock yourself down, right? You don't let anybody come in there because you're terrified that, that they will hate you like you do, you know? And, and so what you do to survive, you build a facade outside, something that you can paint as fast as you can pick up people's expectations, but you got nothing to live from, you know? Wow. And so you're drawing wow. everything from the outside in. And, you know, I didn't actually be, uh, believe because of shame. I didn't believe that I was either smart or creative. I just thought I fooled people. And that was an under, even when I graduated Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude, wow. walked out, I thought I fooled them. And, um, oh, and it's so pain. I just think of like my kids, uh, if they ever felt that, oh, how sad I would be. Golly, you me know, too. Like, no, you really are good. But they, yeah, I get the shame thing. Though. Yeah. I understand it. Well, shame, shame is I am something wrong, right? Yeah. Guilt is I've done yeah. something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. And, and, uh, shame really impacts your capacity on so many different levels. And there was never, there has never been something right about shame yeah. at all. So, um, I, because I'm smart and creative, it actually empowered me to hide inside my shack longer than it, mm. than it could have. And, and some of us, well, that's not wild. oh my gosh, some of us, you know, we're so broken on the inside that we really have to get caught. Yeah. You know, it, I, I'm. I think it is so courageous when people expose themselves, when they, mm -hmm. when they honestly admit that they're a mess, that they are full of, you know, that they're a liar or they're a cheater or a betrayer or whatever. And that wasn't in that. I couldn't do it. I, I could mm -hmm. not do it. The emotional uh, backlash within myself was too great. So I had to get caught. So I got I really caught. appreciate that. You said that in a heart of a man, when you did that movie um, and yeah. you shared like, you know, you got caught because I felt like it was, it was helpful for a lot of people who got caught and who, 
whose wives or husbands or whatever, mostly in my world, it would be wives who were like just so angry, like you got caught on. That means I'll never trust you again. Exactly. And some of the things that you said, I felt like were helpful, whether it's that issue or any other issue. It's like it was so helpful for people to yeah. feel even like another ounce of shame just came off of them just yeah. because you shared like, actually, I had to be caught for this to, to well, come out of it's it. It's uh, Leanne Payne who says that the unexposed is the unhealed. Mm. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to expose us. You know, the world, the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world, which the word convict in the, in the Greek is to expose and not to humiliate you, but you are such a massively intricately crafted masterpiece that the the kind of damage in you, the kind of damage in you, God's not going to heal you apart from your participation. God has way more respect for us than we do. And, and this God will say, no. Uh, I'm going to work at your speed and I'm in your prison with you. Yeah. And I'm not going to even rip out of your hands your survival mechanisms because to do so would be a violation of relationship. So I'm going to yeah. love you to the place where you're willing to let them go. Because even though they kept you alive as a child, they are impediments to relationships of authenticity now. Wow. You're such a poetic man. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this though, because um, going into the story of you gave us the shack and you were vulnerable and you said, this is, this is it. This yeah. is the real story. And you, you decided to tell everybody the whole world I'm yeah. Mac and this is what I went through. And this is, this is hard. A lot of the creative people that are out there, I feel, and again, cause there's people who are looking, they're looking for not prototypes in the sense of like idolatry, but just they're looking sure, for sure. like, you know, this is like the first generation. Like Paul saying, follow even, me as I follow Christ. Exactly. Yeah. There's a first generation of Christians who are going, we can be powerful as creators too, and it, which is really sad. There's been pockets of that throughout history, but there's so many people in our generation who are saying, I have a story to tell. I have a song to write. I have a whatever, a movie to make. And I think a lot of them, I, I love your process because you actually did a process. You yeah. actually engaged. And, and then you were able to bring something that had so much substance that even when people criticized you for it on all levels, it didn't shake you because no. this story didn't define. I'm, I'm the man born blind, right? It's like you can throw all the theology at me you want. I but it speaks I to was night. blind I mean, and I can see. To me, that's like the biggest yeah. proof of transformation. Because I look yeah. at some. I had a friend of mine call me one time years ago and was like, "You're friends with Paul." Blah 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 blah. And I was like, "Wow, the wrath in you!" Like he's the most loving man. <laughs> like probably have ever met and what you're saying compared to like you're coming at me with a a religious disposition of what you think paul represents right that is so off kilter and wrong because the way you read the shack with your filter yep. one day you're going to need that book someone close to you is going to die or something's going to happen yep. and you're going to need that book and it's going to open up whole conversations for you but right now you're coming from a place where you have this platform and you're a minister and you're the and years later he did he called me back and his dad had died wow. and that book was the key book that opened his heart to god isn't that amazing that's the redeeming genius of god totally the, oh god, the person gosh. who hated you and thought you were like complete that i should get out of a relationship with you and, and and make sure that i never talk to you again it's like that gal that <laughs> i got on the flight with in Asheville, north carolina and i had a copy of the book and and she said, you're not going to read that book, are you? Oh, really? Yeah. And I said, well, I've, I read it. Have you? And she said, yeah, I read it about a year and a half ago. Hated it. Ooh. And I said, really? What did you hate about it? And it was like I opened up a machine gun nest and she just hammered on everything. I hated the Trinity. It was violation of all this and that. And then I said, so what did you not like about the Trinity? And she said, uh, I don't remember, but. And now 
you know, you, when you run out of things to say, you start to assassinate character, like, yeah. like, you know, you don't have to know someone to kill them, you know? Mm. And, uh, so she's, she, she sounds like she knows me. Right. And so next breath she took, I said, I got a question for you. Do you know the author? And she goes, well, no. And then that little flickering light that you can almost see above somebody's head. She looks at me and she goes like, you're not the author, are you? I said, yeah, I am. She oh, goes, wow. no, you're not. I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> she said, no, you're not. I had to show her my driver's license, two credit oh cards, my, my Delta Sky Miles card. And then what she's supposed to do. So she just leans back and goes, oh, this is such a God thing. And I'm going like, I don't know what that means. But, yeah. and I said, look, don't care about the book. It's fine. Tell me how you ended up sitting next to me on a flight from Asheville, North Carolina to Atlanta, you know, yeah. today. How, what's your story? And she starts telling me how a year and a half before this, she had lost her home, lost her marriage, lost her kids, Ooh. was selling herself for drugs and was suicidal. And a hellfire damnation preacher comes through that part of town and opens up the possibility of a relationship with God to her. For all, for, from my point of view, for all the wrong reasons, right? Yeah. But it saved her life. And now she's white knuckling it, right? Oh, wow. and, and I'm listening to this and I had such a sense of love for her. And I said, you know, I said, I'm one, I've walked with Jesus a long time and I'm thrilled about the adventure that you're on and your, your zeal. Cause she was very powerful mm -hmm. in her presentation. I said, <laughs> I said, your, your zeal will hold, will be very valuable to you. I, yeah. I really want to encourage that. And I said, but if God was sitting right next to you right now, I think I know what he'd say. And she said, what? And I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, relax. And tears just start running oh. down her face, you know? And so we talk, it was only a 23 minute flight. You know, we land, she gives me a little hug and she said, I'll read it again. And I said, I don't care. Really don't. Yeah. So we go our different ways. And 20 minutes later on, on the train at Atlanta airport, you know, she walks on and I'm in the train already, Paul. And it's wow. like, we're the oldest yeah. friends because we got past all the issues of resistance. And I think, you know, if I'd have been at risk in that conversation, if my, if my sense of identity had been locked into this book, we'd have missed all of that. Yeah. And it's like, ah, I don't want to miss that. Cause why are we here? We're here for the yeah. one. We're not here for I, the masses. I think that conversation can mentor so many people who mm -hmm. are going after creativity as a career. Yeah. Because that's the part that's the hardest part. They look at rotten tomatoes and they go, even if there's 89% who like their film and there's 12% yeah. from Rotten Tomatoes and they're like, I get that because know. I used to play piano when I was younger. And, uh, by the age of 12 or 13, I was 10th grade Royal conservatory, which is teaching level. Wow. So I was good. I was wow. doing these music festivals twice in two years. I, I came no in, I, nobody did. I came in second and first was a free ride to Juilliard or whatever. Oof. And, um, and, but when I would do these concert events, things, I'd walk out if one person said that I'd missed a note or didn't like it. It didn't matter with a, with a thousand people said yeah. they loved it. And, and I would literally be sick puking my guts out for two weeks. And that's wow. why at one point it would, the, the massive fear that was involved, just, I shut it down. So I walked away and never touched it again, you know, and uh, I'll goof around now and then, but, but. It was. Well, it now was, we want you as a pianist again. Whatever. No, and, uh, seriously. I'll wait till I get to heaven because there's really no. good teachers there. And, uh, and, uh, uh. but it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things, where, you know, you, 
you want to make a career in something, don't let your career inhibit your ability to trust. Yeah. That's the issue for me. This is about trust. And so many decisions we make, we are imagining outcomes, yeah, whether they're positive. Sure. This is part of the dreaming thing that I just have a real problem with mm-hmm. is that we're trying to, we're trying to craft imaginations and dreams out of fear rather than the freedom to create. Wow. Right. And if you don't do the inside work, you won't have, you won't, you won't have another ability. So one of the things you can look at is look at your life and say, how much future tripping do I do? How, how much do I create fear-based imaginations that, and then, and then try to control my life so that the things that I'm afraid of don't happen. Or I create fear-based imaginations for positive things to happen, and then I'm always at risk in every moment along that whole journey because something is not going to live up to the expectation. And suddenly, what does that say about my identity? I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I can't compete. I'm not good at this. Whatever the self-talk is, that's where you got to do the work. And that's where you got to become a truth teller. You got to be honest with God. Oh, I was thinking about that passage where where uh, all these folks are coming to Jesus and they're saying, we did miracles in your name. We did this in your name. And uh, we cast out demons and we, you know, all this great stuff in your name. And Jesus says, I don't even know you. And you know what he's saying? Don't come to me with your false self because I don't know a false self. It's not real. Yeah. So they're presenting their activity as their identity. Mm. And he's saying, no. It's funny because a friend of mine, I was saying, you know, we just need more spiritual self-awareness. And she laughed. She's a psychologist. She goes, no, it's just called self-awareness. Yeah. <laughs> she goes, it's not yeah. spiritual self This is about she being goes, this human. this is about learning about who we are and being, and valuing who we are. And I start laughing at, and it, she's a Christian, you know, and she's like, we got to take the Christianese out of it and just say, we Come just on. need self-awareness, period. Good for her. And the reality is that so many people, when they're going through these stages of, you know, I want something. They spiritualize it, put a God card on it, and then they call it a prophecy. Yeah, exactly. Versus saying, I really want something. I'm hoping that in my relationship with God as I'm creating that I will have success. And that's already given. But define eternity. success. Exactly. But they've defined it with a God card. Uh-huh. And I think that's, I've, I've had And they've defined like, it with an outcome. Exactly, which is what you're saying. So I think I've, I've probably, as more of a ministry type guy here in, in the land of Los Angeles, had to walk more people out of disappointment because their identity was off because of what they were going for wasn't a bad thing, but how they defined it came from that false place, that false sense of self. So I love that language. It's really mm-hmm. helpful. Great. Great. Wow. Well, we're going to come back in a few minutes, but I've loved our talk. Thank you so much oh, for this portion. Loved it. Two way street. Absolutely. I have a game I want to play with you. We'll Sweet. see how it goes. Everyone needs someone to process their prophetic journey with them. And we have created a new online mentoring platform where you can grow at your own pace, where we help you to develop your own spiritual journey of hearing God's voice. I want to help be your mentor. We have videos, interactive webinars, over five new videos each week. They're going to advance you in your journey and authority. We have so many special opportunities in this platform that you don't want to miss it, including all of our other e-courses coming for free when you subscribe. Come grow with me. Let me train you in your ability to hear from God and interpret what you hear and really bring applications so that your real life is affected by your spiritual faith. Go to bullsministries.com and sign up under eCourses. So we're going to play a game. Sweet. It's called Something Real and Something Fake. Something Real and Something, and something Fake. fake. Okay, so got it. I'm going to give you two facts. 
and one is real and one is not real. Okay. I need to decide which one is real and which one is not real. So is this about you or about me? It's about you. Oh, cool. So online research says Hopefully. that you state that you didn't know you were white until you were six years old. And you discovered the color of your skin the first time when you went to school, boarding school, I'm assuming, because you told that story in the last segment. Sure. So here's two facts about people who also didn't know what color they were. Ooh. This doesn't actually have to do with you, but it's interesting. <laughs> Number one, a German model who darkened the color of her skin to become a black woman has appeared on TV saying that she believes that she and her white husband could have a black baby. That's wow. fact number one. Fact number two is race agoria is a condition that makes people identify as another race while fearing their own. So some of the most uh, common people to have this are white people who identify as African-American. And I suppose that one of those is true. One, one of those is true. False. One of those is false. You know how how do you vote for the first one without making models or you know models look, <laughs> you, know, you know, because I heard something about somebody who who um, colored the color of their skin, yeah. and uh, so I'm gonna go like that one's the true one. It's a true one. She yep. calls herself as black trans. Oh, That's actually, okay. It's a new term. So it's a, she really thinks she's gonna have a black baby. It's very interesting. Wow. So she was on British television saying that. So it's not we're not making fun of her. Do what you want with in, that in information. In this case, beauty is skin deep, right? <laughs> skin deep. Oh, my Lord. Okay, here we go. Here's, okay, a, here's okay, a much okay. more positive All one. right, cool. Octavia Spencer plays yes. Papa in the film adaptation to The Shack. Which one of these is true about her? And before we say that, she is amazing. She is amazing. As a human being, she's amazing. She seems like it. She How is. How much time have you spent with her? Oh, Minutes. Minutes. <laughs> no, we spent though. we I we had a, a day on on set. Yeah, and uh, I mean she's just as earthy and real and comes across that way yeah. both in the film. I have two mutual friends, and I say that. Oh, they, I love her. Yeah, she's, I'm like, why are we not friends if I have two mutual friends? Though I don't understand. Hey, it's all a matter know. of time. <laughs> no, I love her though. She's so amazing. Okay, yeah. so here's the two facts. Number one. When asked about her net worth being over $20 million by a British talk show, Octavia quit back. Can someone please show me to my secret bank account? I want access to that money. <laughs> so that's number one. Okay. Number two is, in April 2009, Entertainment Weekly listed Spencer as among the 25 funniest actresses in Hollywood, to which she replied when interviewed, just give me time to work up the ranks and show how funny I can really be. <laughs> which so one I, I'd go with the first one because here's the deal. I've, I, if you look, used to, you used to be able to look up me and Forbes, and uh, Forbes online, yeah. and somebody had put my information with somebody else's net worth, and I was worth two point one billion. Ooh! So I'm, I'm like, so, so everybody's I'm, coming I after you in the billionaires. Club oh saying, my goodness! It's like, ah, uh, that's pretty wild. But uh, yeah, I can totally see her saying like, yes. yeah, show me to my secret bank account. She didn't say that. You know who said that? Uh -uh. Tiffany Haddish. She's a new oh, actress. Kind yeah, of, not yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe she's newer. She actually said, or she's actually one of the 25 funniest actresses in Hollywood, which is really awesome because when you look at her kind of film repertoire, it's almost all comedy until more recently. Sure, sure. And she's in a lot of really significant work recently. She has. It's outside of comedy. Well, I'm surprised that she's that far down the list. Oh, I know. Yeah. I, but this was 2009. So oh, she's done a okay. lot of 2009. So, okay, that. here we Missed go. You're going to like this. Okay. Time you live in Happy Valley, Oregon. I used to. You used to, but okay. You used to. Well, I, I, You'll still I like was you. living in Boring, and then. Boring. Uh, yeah. You know, because about the time I wrote The Shack uh, was in Boring. After The Shack, um, we moved to Happy Valley. And <laughs> it's like a prophetic I know, I know. There's one, one town in between. <laughs> <laughs> What's the town in between? You, to get from Happy Valley, or from, get from Boring to Happy Valley, you have to go through Damascus. Oh, my gosh. I'm serious. This is so, this is so funny. Anyway. It's like a biblical analogy yeah, right there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So here we go. They have very specific laws in that region of Oregon. And here's two laws. Which one is true? 
Number one, fishing with corn. Sites have also claimed that it's illegal for people in Happy Valley to use canned corn fishing. Not quite the case, said spokesman with uh, the State Department of Fish and Wildlife. <laughs> you can use fish with corn if you'd like, but so-called chumming is not allowed. It's against the rules to, uh, to use empty cans of corn out in the water in any effort to attract fish in the area. Have you ever heard such a thing? No, but it sounds like it's totally legit. Here's number two. <laughs> okay. Juggling in Happy River Valley or Happy Valley River. Others are a bit of a toss up. Several sites say that you must have a license to juggle in Happy Valley. City representatives said the rule does exist, but is not enforced and couldn't be located in any city documents. So it sounds like it's sort of maybe kind of a legit rule. <laughs> Do with it whatever you will, but it's there. Uh, I still go with the chumming one. That's true. Yeah. Juggling is actually Hood River only. It's yeah. Hood River specific because supposedly something happened where there was some juggling accidents because there was a surge of youth back in the 1920s who were juggling <laughs> and they hurt so many people and there was some lawsuits oh that my it caused gosh. no juggling to be done. So the chumming, I have no idea where that came from, but it's very interesting. I've never heard of this. This is Oregon. Yeah. That's Oregon for you. Yeah, that's Oregon for you. Okay, keep, here we go. Last keep one. Keep Portland weird. I heard that you might have been a janitor at some point. I was. I was too. Yep. Isn't that funny? Uh, more than once, actually. Janitorial job facts. Here we go. About famous people Sweet. who are also janitors. This is good. All right. Jennifer Aniston, in addition to acting, Jennifer Aniston can clean toilet bowls in a mean way. And it's on a resume. Of her toilet bowl cleaning days, Jennifer brags, I made my allowance as a kid cleaning toilets. I'm actually pretty good at it, but I don't want to go back there. That's number one. So Jennifer Aniston. Number two, Stephen King, the janitor. In his young days, American author Stephen King found himself doing janitorial work at Brunswick High. Stephen King is known for his work in the genre of horror, supernatural fiction, suspense, science fiction, and fantasy, and renowned across the globe with over 350 million copies of his books sold. It was interesting. In his uh, brief stint as a janitor, he found that his inspiration for one of his books titled Carrie. Yeah. I was just going to say, no wonder... Yeah, the horror stuff. Uh, but I'm I'm thinking Jennifer Aniston. They were both janitors. They were both, they were janitors. both janitors. Oh, I actually them. tricked you on that one. I loved yeah. it, though. They were both janitors. I just thought it was interesting when we were looking these up. I was like, we should list all the janitors. And they, there's actually a list I'm, online. I'm sure there's a whole that bunch of... That shows all these people yeah. who have amazing careers now that started out as janitors or yeah. had a stint as Yeah, a we could make some comments about that, but let's... <laughs> <laughs> save it for another time. Let's save it for another kind of show. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, that was so fun. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Exploring the Industry listeners, we have an incredible book that I just released just for you. My new book, Provision, Prophecies, Prayers, and Declarations is out now. I wrote this book so that you would have a very specific tool to help you use words to define your own history and future with God. Throughout human history, we've seen prayer and the prophetic and declarations shape society, set culture, provide heritage, and bring vision for the future. And when you combine prayers, declarations, and prophecies like you encounter in this book, you become even more intentional about the power of words. Prophecies, prayers, and declarations are instrumental for us to enter our promised land. This book, Provision, Prophecies, Prayers, and Declarations, will cover topics and finances, resources, family, influence, favor, business, and more. Through this book, I'm inviting you on the journey of learning how to use words to speak in the very fabric of your life, the spiritual realm and the world around you. I pray that you'll find yourself using and reusing this book as you hear God speak to your heart. You can get our book anywhere books are sold, but if you get it at bullsministries.com and you pre-order it or post-order it, you're going to get a very exclusive teaching series. So I want to encourage you to get it there. 
Welcome to Exploring the Industry with Sean Bowles. I'm your host, and I'm so glad to have Paul Young with me. And this has been amazing to it just has been amazing. talk to you about things. I think a lot of people, when they hear from you, they hear kind of the, the journey story before the shack. They hear about the shack itself. But we're talking creatively and inspirationally about God as a creator, about who we are, identity, mm-hmm. these kinds of things, which I think is really exciting because we're talking to an entertainment-based crowd mostly or people who are interested in entertainment. And you somehow got into this whole arena without even planning it. (laughs) All of a sudden you're like a dad here. Not on the bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like entertainers all over, they look at you and they spend like five minutes with you. You're like, oh, they tuck themselves up under your arm. They're like, okay. So sweet. Yeah, no, it's really sweet, but it's it's because of you have this grace to carry people. Mm. And the fact that, you know, almost anyone I know in the entertainment industry who's met you is like, you become like Papa Young, you know, Papa yeah, Paul, here thanks. he is, which is really awesome. It is awesome. It's such a kindness and it's such an honor. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you feel that way. I do. And it doesn't come with a set of expectations. You know, the beauty of all this is that finally I get to be myself. Yeah. And that's what the journey was, is to get to the place where I could be comfortable inside my own skin. Yeah. And have my own sound, my own voice, and know that I'm not in competition with anybody. You know, nobody well, can be in competition. And it shows because you're not trying to build a brand. No. You're not doing photo ops. No. You know, you're not doing like people go to your book signing line, you just like end up hugging them and they cry. Yeah. I have <laughs> I have certain shirts I wear because they absorb tears. That's <laughs> true. I know. What's yeah. different? Because I, I think of like, you know, a lot of people who come to my book signing lines. I remember being with a pastor, famous pastor. We're in the, the airport. Yeah. And uh, someone runs up to him and goes, can you sign my book? I need to talk to you for a minute. And they're like, he's signing. And they're just like, this is so, so inspirational for whatever. And then they come up to me and they're like, you know, another woman runs up to me and said, in the same airport and says, I'm going through a divorce. What do I do? Help me. And I'm like, <laughs> I just read your book. I need your help. You know, like, I need you to hear from God for me. I need you to help me. And I was laughing going, the difference between people who are known for more of like the love, yeah. you know, like not that he's not known for love, but I mean, like. I've actually spent a lot of time with people. I, I think there's a safe place. You've created a safe place where people instantly on ramp to the heart, not to the career or the path. I, I think the book did a lot of that work. Yeah. You know, it's so honest. It's so human that uh, it gave people permission. Yeah. And and a lot of people, you know, they've gone online, they've watched the TBN series or the Heart of Man or whatever. Which is a really good series. It if, is you, a, if you haven't seen that series, go online and watch the TBN series. It's on Amazon After Prime the Shack, now, yeah. is that how you say it? Uh, Restoring, Restoring the Shack. Restoring the Shack. Yeah, right? which I is was, 20 episodes about yeah. just the background behind the scenes. And and um, and uh, and that was a beautiful project. It is. But, but that has given so many people permission. And then wow. some who read Lies We Believe About God, that if they've been struggling with this transitional time in their lives between yeah. what they thought they believed and what seems to be opening up in their hearts that scares them so much. Yeah. Yeah. And it no, does. you have, you've held people's yeah. hands through navigating one of the, probably some of the most difficult challenges of their life because mm. people usually find you when they're in crisis. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, was, I was just, I was just in um, Puerto Rico and it was a beautiful time with a, a church there. And there was a, a group of uh, Baptists out of North Carolina who have been spending ever since the hurricane, they send teams down there to help wow. build houses. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. awesome. And um, and uh, and I didn't know that they were there. They didn't know, you know. So, but they are housed in the same church that we were doing a little writers conference for. Oh, cool. Um, with Brent Locker, and um, so there was a gal there named Carrie who three years ago had had a miscarriage and her mom passed away right in the same season mm. and had just blitzed her. And um, and it was the shack that had really restored her and helped her find a way through that whole season. Wow. Well, 
four days, I think four days before I get there, um, her and her husband were down there on a mission trip and she, uh, her husband had, uh, they were at a place where people were surfing and a, a young man had got swept by a riptide and her husband went out there, actually saved him, but drowned oh. in the process. Oof. So all of a sudden she is just completely, again, this is the third big loss in yeah. three years and then finds out that I'm there. Right. So mm. this through line from the shack and I get to walk into that situation and we're staying at the same place. I mean, I'm speaking at the same place that they're wow. staying at. And so, you know, just to be able to, and she's, she's an amazing human being, Carrie. And, uh, um, but look at the timing of that and the weaver, it, it mattered that it was me that was there because of the through line that the shack had yeah. represented in her history as an encouragement to her own heart. And I got, I just got to be present in it. I mean, it's fantastic. Which is, I think a lot of people who are going after creativity as an industry, it's good for them to hear your example that it's about the people that they get to reach through their creativity. It's not just yeah. about the goal of having the product or having the career or having, like I've really watched that with you is that you like, I feel like for you, this just acted like a door to where now you get to be who you are, to love as many people as you get to love. Yeah. And I don't think that that's been modeled very well, yeah. very often. Well, so many times in the industry, a claim is seen as success. Yeah. You know, and so success is that you rank a certain spot or you're, you know, and that's not kingdom. Kingdom yeah. has never been about a claim. It's actually been about servanthood. It's actually been about self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial love. And so the, the target of that love is always the one, not the many. And, um, and so, uh, you know, sometimes failure has to happen in terms of how it's defined by the world. Failure is necessary for success in terms of kingdom to happen. Mm. And people don't like that. You know, they, they like reading only half of Hebrews chapter 11, <laughs> you know, whereas yeah. we put armies to flight and we raise the dead and all that. And let's forget the part about, you know, we were sawn in half and lived in caves and holes in the ground yeah. by faith, yeah. you know, and we're tempted and afflicted. And, and it's like, and then it says of whom the world was not worthy. worthy, you know? So who's the audience that matters to you, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, we've got, we have got to change our mindset. But to do that, you have to deal with the fears that drive you yeah. to need success to validate your identity, right? Which we're talking about before. Exactly. And I think that's, that's, again, there's not many role models because there's people who will tell you, your agent, your manager will tell you, they'll tell you, stay away from people. Because the, the more you give, the more you have to give. And there's an us and them kind of mentality imparted from whether it's a musician, an actor, an NFL player. A pastor. A pastor. That's yeah. true. People, oh. like, I'll have handlers and I'm like, no, I'm going to go talk to that person. Leave me alone. I call them revival bouncers. You know, like they're like the bouncers yeah. who come in and I'm like, yeah. leave me. I want to actually, I want to see people. Like I want to connect. Even if I'm not, I'm not extremely extroverted, but I'm, I'm here for people. I'm like, not ultimately. Either. I'm an introvert. You do it really well. I have uh, extrovert communication style, yeah. but, and it's also because I think the wholeness that has happened in my life has allowed me to, to, to push through some of the boundaries that yeah. my introversion would set up. I agree. I, yeah. I feel the same. Yeah. I feel and the I'm, same. and I'm grateful. And, and also part of it is just learning how to live inside the grace of just one day yeah. so that your whole world is only what's in front of you. That's it. Mm. Not the outcomes down the road, not what this means. Cause you could be dead by tomorrow. <laughs> which yeah. is real inhibitor for control, if you think yeah, about it, you know? Totally. <laughs> so, yeah. So what do we do with the fear in our life? You know, and I'm saying, one, confess it, you know, admit it, and deal with the lies that are behind it. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times 
the lies have to do with uh, how you view yourself or your inability to love yourself, or yeah. it has to do with the nature and character of a God that you grew up with that you can't trust, you know, and, and you need to have God involved in that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Which is why you wrote that book. Yeah, exactly. Which is amazing. Okay. Well, let's go here for a minute because I think it's interesting. Like I think I, I know people might've heard the story, but let's kind of unpack it a little bit. So you write the book for a few people, do your first book for My a kids. few people, for your kids. So yeah. you had how many copies? Uh, we made 15. Okay. 15 copies. Which was a miracle at the time. Somebody comes along and says, we should publish this. So, um, so we made 15 copies and then, um, my friends start giving it to their friends. And so we pooled okay. our money together, made 15 more copies. And, um, I had met an actual author one time <laughs> and I start getting emails from people that I don't know. Oh, wow. Right. Friends of friends who are reading the manuscript and these emails were not like, Oh, uh, thank you. Your friend shared the book and it was great. It was like, rip open my heart. Here's our story. We have a great sadness. Your wow. book is really helping us. Your manuscript is really helping us through. So I didn't know what to do with the emails. So yeah. I, I, and the reason that I'd met an actual author is that he needed a driver one day and I drove him around for like six hours <laughs> and uh, Wayne Jacobson in California. So I sent him the manuscript, but I sent him it to ask him, how, how do you deal with these? And we, we didn't have a personal relationship. Yeah. It was um, an email every once in a while. And, um, and uh, I said, what do you do with these emails? And, and, and he, and he said, uh, his response was, you know, it takes a long time for me to get to, cause I get asked all the time to read people's manuscripts. Um, so it might be six months, but, um, I'll, I'll try to and give you some feedback. I was on a Friday on a Monday. He calls me back and says, what were you thinking? Sending me that manuscript. I'm going, I have enough shame in my history. When somebody raises their voice like that, I'm going like, throw it out, throw it out. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. You know? And he said, no, I, I can't print the pages fast enough. Oh. I'm going, Really? He says, he said, I don't remember reading a book in the last 10 years where my first thought was, I have friends I need to send this to right now. I said, send it to whoever you want. He said, I already did. So that started the conversation with him. He had two friends who also didn't know each other, but both were interested in the film industry. And um, so the three of them started to have a conversation with me about actually making a film out of this. And I'm still working my three jobs up in Portland. Yeah. And um and so uh, it, in that conversation, we decided it was it was uh, uh, Wayne and um, Brad Cummings and Bobby Downs. And we decided, uh, let's put it into print. Right. So it took a year and a half basically to do rewrites and get it typeset and the whole thing covered design. Yeah. And um, and then we sent it to 26 publishers, all of whom turned it down. Exactly. You know, well, what was the average turndown letter? What does it say? Uh, the average one was the silence. Oh, so they didn't even respond. <laughs> they they didn't like, even respond, I don't think. It's like, bye-bye. No, and, but the, the, the reasons were like both the secular and the, and the faith-based. About half of them were secular, half of them faith-based. And the reason was that they didn't, one, they didn't know where to put it in a store. They couldn't figure out what yeah. genre it was. Self-help, theology, you know, what is this? Murder mystery? <laughs> what is this? So they didn't know. And but the faith community thought it was too edgy, and the secular folks thought it had too much Jesus, and so I got stuck between edgy and Jesus. That's so and, funny. and what the publishers in the world didn't know was that there are millions of people stuck between edgy and Jesus. Yes, yeah. that's so true. Oh, so true. So it's like a genre you created. Yeah, yeah. So no, <laughs> no, yeah, the edgy Jesus genre. So nobody wanted it, and and I just said, how hard is it to publish a book? Well. 
uh, Wayne and his friend Brad had wanted to create a little publishing house for stuff that they were doing. And this, this became the opportunity to do it. So the two of them filed paperwork with the state of California, created a little publishing house. Oh my gosh. And, and Brad volunteered to ship books out of his house at night because he's putting people's sprinkler systems into their yards during oh the day. Oh my gosh. And, and then it was like, so how many do we order? Well, I don't know. Um, the, the only thing that I knew statistically was that if you can sell 100,000 copies, Hollywood will come talk to you about a movie. Okay. Right? What I didn't know is that the average book only sells three to 5,000 yeah. copies its yeah. entire existence. And, um, and I, I didn't know that if, if you wrote a novel and sold 7,500, you can legit put a bestseller sticker on it. Oh, wow. I didn't right? know that either. Didn't know. Yeah. So I'm going like, uh, how many do we order? So we got a big price break from a local printer near Brad's house. Uh, if you order 10,000. So okay. I had a buddy in Oregon who loaned me the money for my first third of the per first print run. Wow. And, uh, and then um, uh, Wayne had some savings and Brad had a Visa and a MasterCard. Literally, that's... So you all three put in... A third of the first print run. Wow. Yep. And you had to borrow yours. And I had to borrow I mine. think that's significant to say because like, I mean, there's a lot of people doing yeah. projects that are like... Yeah. And you just had faith like something will happen. Yeah. And it, and it was like there was a sense about this that was... And my my friend who loaned me the money, we've been through a long journey together anyway, yeah. which that's a whole nother story, beautiful story. So it was like, all right. And he was, I think for him, it was like, I'm doing this because I love you. If it doesn't work, it's fine. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. And um, so first print run, we ordered 10,000. They drop ship 11,000 copies because there's this thing called overage in publishing yeah. where you're allowed to accidentally print an extra 10% and charge you for them. And so we ended up with 11,000 in the garage, no marketing, no promotion. Oh Nobody knows we exist. The only place you could buy the book was off a website that we created for the little publishing oh house. Gosh. The only place you could find the website was at the back of the book. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. So it's like, we're brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah. so then it was, uh, while our goal is to get through, um, 11,000 copies in two years, work our way to a hundred thousand. And then Hollywood will come talk to the, the guys about a movie. And so that, that became the goal, right? So I'm back doing my job and stuff. And we gave a bunch away and, and I get a call three and a half months into this. We need to order more books. And I'm going like, did we give them all away or what? You know, <laughs> did we give them all away? <laughs> it's like, Who did, no. How many did you give away, guys? People are coming to the website and they're buying one and then they come back two weeks later and they yeah. buy five and then they come back two weeks later and buy cases. And, um, and it's like, really? So one of our sons, Nicholas, moves down there to help ship I books remember. out of the house. And then um, um, we go through, we order 20, we run out, right? We order 20,000, they deliver 22,000. And we go through 22,000 books in 60 days. And then we go through 33,000 in 30 days. And by this time, it's like the publishers who turned us down are showing up because the, exactly. the booksellers are coming. Like Barnes and Nobles calls us up and says, hey, we're excited about your book. And could you send us your marketing promotion plan so that we can get on board? And I think Brad said, could you send us one we could cut and paste? Oh, my gosh. And, um, and then um, it was like... Uh, they laughed and hung up, but two weeks later they call back and they say, Hey, you know, normally we charge a publisher a lot of money to put their books at the front of our stores nationwide. Would you consider us allowing us to do that for you for three months for free? You're like, no. Yeah. Like, no, not. let me pray and fast about that one. <laughs> okay. I'm done. And, um, so they did. And by Christmas we hit number one in all books in Amazon. And then wow. in those first 13 months from May of 07. When Wait, it, stop there for okay. a second. 
number one on Amazon in all books. What was that that day like for you? What what were you doing that day? Oh, I was just at home, and I didn't really understand it. I didn't because the book thing is not my world yeah. that much, you know. The one that was a big surprise for me was at the end of the 13 months. So in the first 13 months, we, um, and, and that, that's a marker because at the end of the 13 months, Brad and Wayne, who owned the publishing house, entered a joint venture with Hachette, who took the book internationally, Okay. right? But in those first 13 months, out of a garage, two storage units, and a local printer, we spent less than 300 bucks in marketing and advertising and shipped almost 1.1 million copies wow. of Hachette, right? So, but at the end of those 13 months, just before they, the joint venture with Hachette took place, I was in Hawaii, first vacation that my family and I had had in 10, 15 years, right? Where we all were together. That's awesome. And, and I'm swimming in Hanama Bay outside of Honolulu, snorkeling around, you know? And all of a sudden I look up and my kids are on the beach and they're, they're like waving their arms around, you know? And I'm thinking, shark, <laughs> you know? Oh, it's no. like, you know, you can walk on water. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you made so, it fast. So I got out to the beach and I'm going like, what? And they go, dad, your book showed up on the New York Times bestseller list. And I wow. went, really? What number? One. It had not been wow. on it and it showed up at one and it stayed number one for 49 weeks in a row. No, that was, that was phenomenal. It was unbelievable. See, and well, that's, that's the, I mean, that's probably one of the top 10 books in, or, yeah. Yeah, in their history. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of distance, yeah. So it was just like, what is this? So I kept my three jobs until February of 08. And by then, I was being asked to come speak, and and I didn't know what I was doing. And thank goodness for Wes Yoder and Ambassador Speakers Bureau, because they just out of the blue stepped in and said, the Lord has told us to put everything we do at your disposal at no charge. And what did they do? What was that like? They just helped with logistics, right? And they helped with the publicist stuff and 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 Wes and Linda have become two of our closest friends, yeah. you know. So so again, it was just uh, the the building of relationships along the course of this was just amazing. But yeah, it was a god thing. I mean, there's just no way. Yeah. And and you, how do you write a formula out of that? You know. No, I think it's funny that you you get the New York Times bestseller list and you're still working your jobs. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it's like somebody yeah. who wins a lottery and. There's one guy who won a lottery and he worked for a year because it didn't hit him. Yeah. And he won like a really big lot. And I just think it's kind of like that. Like you just, your story turned into a completely different world for you, but you had, you had to catch up to it. Yes. In terms of what was going on, but thankfully I'd yeah. done the work. Yeah. Right. So that yeah. I didn't change me. I yeah. got to be the same person now in an entirely unexpected environment. I thought I was going to work three jobs the rest of my life. And I was actually very good with that. I was content. Yeah. I'd gotten rid of my addiction to doing something great for God. I got written my rid of my addiction to pleasing my dad, yeah. I, you know, as well as the other yucky ones, you know, but, um, it was like, all right, you know, one day's grace at a time, have no clue where this is going. But, uh, um, were you afraid to publish again because that was so phenomenal? Well, it took, it took some time. Here's, this is a great, that's actually a great story. So, um, we had to work out a lot of legal stuff cause there was no agreements. There was, you know, and then the one we had, it, there were some issues with it. So that took a while to kind of settle the dust. Yeah. And, um, yeah, money gets complicated. And yeah. Agreements get complicated. I, success can bring more crap out of people than failure ever will, yeah. you know? So, so, and, and, and part of that is that some of my own deep stuff showed up, you know, mm. in the middle of that, that I had to deal with. So, yeah. You're never quite done the finish work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, so, um, uh, I, in signing an agreement, uh, 
I agreed to write on purpose a novel for okay. Hachette, right? It's like, I'm writing a book on purpose? Like, I mean, <gasps> yeah. you know, I the shack didn't happen that way. It was just like flow, right? So I thought, all right. I And, and I said, you know that I don't even have a really a concrete idea. There's no title. There's no nothing. They said, okay, it's okay. You have a year. I said, okay. So I'm, I'm good with it for a while. And then I get a call from New York. Hey, Paul, great news. Seven languages have bought your next book. And I got triggered. I mean, I, yeah. the part of the beauty, and this is how you know that you're moving down a path that's a good one, is that, that when you get triggered, what used to take you six months to deal with takes you six hours. Or, oh, that's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. that's one of the ways you yeah. can tell. You're able to find your way through it. Yeah. Well, I, it's like, seven languages have bought my next and i said do they know that there's like nothing there's no there more. and they said oh yeah yeah they they're very aware but you have till august of next year and i'm sitting there after the phone call and i'm i have the the moment of anxiety like and then i'm go like wait a minute and it really it took me about less than 10 minutes to work my way through it and it was like wait a minute when when did I begin to think that I was the one behind all this? Mm. You know, really, and um, I I'm not. I didn't ask for any of this. Yeah. And so I said, I said, Lord, you know, if next August comes and I don't have one word written on one page, and I completely fall on my face in terms of the expectations of the reading community and my publisher, I'm in. Oh wow, I'm in. If that's what it means. So so some there's a part of future tripping that you just got to shut down and say no. But sometimes it's so overwhelming that you need to go into it. But take wow. God with you into it. Yeah. Right? And saying, all right, so what does that day look like? You know, and am I humiliated? No. My identity is intact. Right? This is a set of expectations that's been placed on this. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm fine. And so as soon as I did that, it was like, I'm in. If that's what it means, I'm in. Because wow. I don't know anymore what specifically the purposes of God are, right? <laughs> so yeah. I don't have to have yeah. success in order to validate the purposes of God. I'm not according to anything, right? So I don't have to make my decisions based on outcomes. I make them out of obedience in terms of this real relationship happening in the, in the grace of the day, in the moment. It right. makes you very brave. <laughs> well, it, 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 I'm missing the right it, construct. Authenticity is, yeah. is courageous. It is. It's right? very, yeah. So, um, so I was fine. I, I, I started just speaking and everything and nothing was happening for a few months. I get back from, I have this idea that's rolling around in my head every once in a while. And I get back from uh, Korea for the shack. And I get a call from um, somebody who says, hey, we've got a... We got a beach place down on the coast of, in uh, Oregon that um, it's available for 11 days if you want to use it. Nice. So I said, yeah, timing works perfect. I go down there. I wrote, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 words wow. of a, in, in, 11, in days. 11 days. And Kim came down with uh, one of her sisters and brother-in-law uh, for a weekend. But in the course of that, it just went bam. Yes. And, I, I, and then I got another six days somebody gave me up near Mount Hood. And this was Eve. This was Crossroads. This was Crossroads. Okay. Yep. Crossroads. Okay. And so Crossroads. Which is amazing. Oh, Crossroads is my, that's Kim's favorite, you know, and, yeah. and it's a beautiful book. And it's like, I had it done. The first draft that was due in August, I had it done by the end of April. Oh, wow. I know. Yeah. And so that's why it came out the fall of that year rather than the spring of the next year. Yeah. 
because it's like I wasn't due till August. But again, freedom is inside the the framework and structure wow. of what's going on, right? And um, and I love that. I freedom feels irresponsible. Yeah. But trust feels risky, and 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 it is. Right? Yeah. But that's why we would rather have control than actually trust. You know, I think that's why we're attracted to religion. Well, with that, okay, so Crossroads. So you have Crossroads come out. Yep. And I feel like the shack was more like your process, you're giving it to your family, but Crossroads you actually wrote for real, like for in real. the sense of like, I'm writing, yeah. I'm yeah. now an author, that's what I do. Yeah. How are you do when that. I can't, I can't, yeah, do, I can't do that. It's now yeah. what I get to do yeah. and if I want to. Yeah. And how did it meet your expectation or did you not have any? Or I didn't have any. And and the experience of writing Crossroads was very similar to the experience for the shack. It, and to use the river metaphor, it was like jumping in a river and letting it carry you downstream. Okay. And so when you do that, especially with fiction, the characters you create begin to take the story in their own direction. Yeah. And part of it is you as the writer have to have to negotiate with the characters about what's going on. And it happened in the shack too. There were scenes in the shack where something happened and I didn't have a clue why oh, until wow. I wrote it. Right. And so well, like when the bird shows up and I don't, I'm going like, I just wrote a bird into this scene. Yeah. Why? And then Papa goes, see this bird. And I'm writing things like I'm listening to Papa talking. Right. Wow. Well, in Crossroads, there is a scene where Tony, who's not a nice guy, he's the main character. And the question in Crossroads is, so how does grace or transformation get inside the world of someone who doesn't want it? Right. Yeah. And uh, so he's not a nice guy. And there's this whole movement relationally that begins to transform him. And at one point there's a cop and his name's Clarence. And, and I know, I know Tony needs Clarence's help to resolve it. An issue that Tony created out of his stupidity. Right. And so I know he's going to ask Clarence for help in this scene. So I'm writing the scene and sure enough, Tony asked Clarence for help. And he says, Tony, I, he says, Clarence, I need some help. And Clarence says, I need some help from you. And I'm mm -hmm. going like, what? What yeah. do you mean you need some help? I don't know about this, right? <laughs> Your characters just came alive. I know. And they've been alive. But, but that's what that's, I, I, And that's, yeah, what, happens. that's, that's and, what happens. And because writers. of that and wow. what happens in that scene, I go down a path I've never even anticipated going down wow. that had to do with Alzheimer's and dementia. Okay. And it's turns out that. to be one of the most beautiful yeah. sections of the whole book. Yeah. What What's funny about that book is I felt like when it was done that I wanted to see it as a series. And like it, I, that's, there's a conversation uh, about that. That's, that's good. Because I mean, I felt like the shack felt like it was bookended. It, it yeah. just was so complete by itself. But yeah. then you read Crossroads and it's like, I want to see the next one and I want to see a TV series or whatever. You know, yes, I want to see it this. would be a fantastic yeah. television series because the, the character development would be so easy to do yeah. and it's really broad, mm -hmm. broad base. So that's, that's one of the pending projects that's sitting in the background wow. is a crossroads series. So let's talk about going to a movie then because the shack goes into a movie and yeah. how much were you involved with that? I didn't expect to be involved at all. There yeah. came a point in the, all the legal negotiations where, where I laid the movie down. Okay. Uh, no creative control. Wow. No rights. Because I remember a couple times you came out and we hung out, you were actually shopping the movie a little bit. Not shopping, no, but like And it wasn't were, me that was shopping. People were connecting to you yep. about the yep. movie. Oh, That's yeah. what it was. There was all so the I mean, time there remember, were So connected. I just was assuming, oh, you want to make a movie out of it? No. Like, yeah. And so... I remember that that's what the dream was of the guys in California, right? And yeah. uh, so it was like, um, um, 
at one point it was the Holy Spirit. I really felt just say, lay it down. Okay. I mean, like a hundred percent, lay it down, like a hundred percent, lay it down. Yeah. And, um, and I did, and that resolved the legal questions that were roiling around at that time. And, wow. um, and it allowed me to then turn and have freedom to then work and write whatever I wanted to. So I didn't expect to be involved. And then Lionsgate called me and said, would you come talk to us? And all, all I did is down here in Hollywood told stories and cried a lot, yeah. you know, with everybody in the room. Yeah. And, um, and then, uh, uh, Gil Netter, you know, calls me up and says, would you look at the script and would you talk to me? What do you think about these people for, um, acting and, and then um, Stuart Hazeldean and I start building a relationship. He's the director. Whoa. And then Lionsgate called me and said, would you consider coming on the first day set and praying a blessing over the entire cast and crew? You know, I here's the beauty of this. Because I laid it down 100%, I had no dog in the fight at all. Yeah. And I think my initial conversation with Lionsgate was, in part, they wanted to check out whether I was going to be an enemy of the project. Yeah. And I never was. And... It was like, and people would say, what if they make a really bad movie? They didn't, but what if they did, you know? And I would say, you know what? I, I truly don't, un, I don't know the purposes of God except love. That's all I know. Yeah. And if a, if a crappy movie gets to the heart and exposes someone who needs to be healed better than a, than a really good movie, I'm in. Wow. Right? So there's no... That's a lot of... Uh... That's a lot of surrender, though, because yeah. that level of surrender for something that you actually care about. Yeah. Uh, part, it's your baby. It's your story. Yes, to, but you want your children to be actually in face-to-face -face relationship with you. Yeah. You know? And and a lot of our sense of ownership and stuff, because we have issues with identity, yeah. and we have issues with security, and we have issues with um, significance in the culture for or sure. whatever, right? So we're driven by... And by the dark side, we can mask yeah. it and baptize it if we want to with language, but it's still the dark side. Yeah. And and so it didn't seem like I was giving up anything. You know, it, wow. it was. Uh, that's that's I, really and beautiful. I, and I never regretted a, a moment of that. And what happened was I ended up in Hollywood, which is, as you know, a world full of agendas that isolates mm -hmm. people because of that. But I ended up in the middle of all these relationships without one. Huh. Right. Yeah. And, it, and it, it, I didn't see that coming because I didn't expect to be involved at all. And so every involvement of Lionsgate and Gill and Lonnie yeah. Netter and, and uh, uh, Stuart and the crew and Joseph Nemec, the set design, all these things were a gift. Wow. You know, and that's the beauty of not living with expectations, right? Yeah. Because expectations just draw a line beneath which nothing's acceptable as a gift. Well, tell me this. How did you feel about the movie after it was done? I, I liked the movie. I mean, there, it was a dialogue part of it, and there were things that I, I went like, mm, not wild about that, you know? Yeah. And uh, but Which would be the most normal response of for course, an because, author. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and, well, and it's not because of what they were doing with the book. That's not the piece of it. Yeah. Um, I just thought there were some things that would be better done differently sure. than they were. And they were very minor. Yeah. You know, overall, I think it's one of the best book to screen adaptations I've ever seen. I do and, too. And, and they worked so hard at being truthful to the storyline yeah. um, that even the things that they added uh, to the book, I thought were fantastic, mm -hmm. you know, and there were things I got out of the movie that I didn't get out of the book. That's amazing right? to say. Oh, you know, well, people got stuff out of the book that I didn't write. <laughs> That's, true. So, That's true. So, yeah. it, it, and it was amazing. And, um, 
Um, so, and then to be invited on set and I was on set a couple times and had yeah. some pretty fantastic. Tell the one story. We don't have much okay. time left, but okay. we have to tell the one story. Okay. I remember you called me and told me about this and it was so crazy that you, you're See, visiting it, the set the yeah. first time in Canada. And, well, it's not the first time. The first time oh, is when okay. I prayed. I that was the first yeah, time. Yeah, it was the second time, which okay. I didn't expect to happen. And it was at the end of their shoot. So okay. the first time I was there, Octavia wasn't there. Sumi, who plays the Holy Spirit, wasn't there. Aviv wasn't there. And um, so the Trinity was not present at the first day shoot, you know, at least not in any visible form. And uh, so, but they, they called me up and on a Monday and they said, Wednesday, we would like to fly you up, right? It's all surprise to me. Fly you up Wednesday. Uh, we'll take you to Chilliwack in Southern BC. Um, set locations are all over the place. We don't know what set location we'll take you to on Thursday, but you'll get the call sheet okay. on um, Wednesday night and spend all day Thursday on set. Friday, we'll fly you home. And it worked out. I was like, this is great. And I'm, I'm sitting at my desk and this nudge, this thought crosses my mind. I wonder if Brad Jerzak is around because he's a theologian who lives in Abbotsford next to Chilliwack where my hotel yeah. is. And I'm thinking like, I've been trying to meet him for three years. Wow. And I'd met Eden, his wife, but I'd never met Brad. And so I'm going like, I wonder if he's in town. So I email him. Hey, Brad, are you, are you on the continent? Because he spends part of the year in London as a seminary professor. Oh, okay. are, you in, are you on the continent? And here's what I'm doing. I'm coming up Wednesday, et cetera. He immediately emails me back. Can I pick you up at the airport? I'm nice. going like, yes. And um, I said, yes. He said, this is what we'll do. We'll have lunch together, have supper that night at, with Eden, and then I'll take you to your hotel and you go about your business. Two minutes later, email with a photo. This time, he says, this is my best friend, Dwight Martin. He's a business guy married to Lori Martin, who's a spiritual formations director. Oh, wow. And uh, Dwight and Dwight is the first person who gave me my first copy of The Shack and told me about it. And they have a summer cottage in Cultus Lake. And he says, well, you and I were emailing. We're up visiting them for a week. We were walking in the woods. And look, and in the photo is Dwight and Brad and a big arrow off to the one side that says The Shack. So one of the set locations nice. for the shack That's awesome. is two and a half blocks away from Dwight and Lori's summer cottage, right? And he's like, um, this is amazing. Look, look, we ran right into it while we're emailing. So he says, you know, um, I, do, I don't know if you'll have the time. I don't know what set location you're going to be at, but if there's any way we could work it out, your book had a massive impact in Dwight and Lori's lives. But three years ago, the youngest of their children uh, in the middle of the woods in a treehouse, um, took her own life mm. and and gave it back to God. Right. Wow. And so they are stuck. They've been stuck now for three years. Dwight believes that if he could read the shack again, he could get unstuck, but he hasn't been able to make it past chapter one. And wow. Lori is just furious because her daughter is dead. Yeah. You know, her oh, daughter yeah. is dead. Oh yeah. And she is so mad at God. She's so mad at life and she's stuck. And I said, we'll figure it out. I'm, I'm coming up. I don't know where, you know, I don't even know what we're going to see filmed, right? Because they always are shooting things out yeah. of sequence. and Oh, for sure. And um, so I don't know anything. But I said, well, we'll figure it out. I'll find a way. And he said, even 10 minutes, if you could even spend 10 minutes. So I get there, meet Brad. It's like meeting a long lost brother, spend the day, talk shop, theology, whatever. That night, uh, he drops me off at the hotel. I said, I'll let you know tomorrow when I find out where I am and all that. And that night at 1130, I get the call sheet. It says, we'll pick you up at 930. We're taking you to the set location at Cultus Lake. That's the, the, the Where they're two and a half. Wow. Because they're back up there now. Nice. Spending the rest of the week with their friends, right? And so when I drive onto the set that day, 
I'm texting him going like, Brad, I'm two and a half blocks away from you. He's, <laughs> he's like, we have food ready. Just let me know. We'll come down the waterfront, pick you up and bring you back even for 10 minutes. So I walk onto the set and uh, Lonnie and Gil and Stuart are standing there in a little circle talking about the day shoots and all that. And um, I walk over and I, I said, you know, is there any way that my four friends could come on set for the day? And not only did they say yes, they said, absolutely. Nice. And 20 minutes later, down the waterfront comes Brad and Eden, Dwight and Lori. And they just got enveloped into this community. Wow. And one of the reasons that they wanted me there was this is where they built the shack, you know? Oh, okay. And so Octavia was there, Sumi's there, Aviva's there. And I still don't know what they're shooting, but it turns out they're shooting outdoor shots, which means you can't hear it and you're at a distance, right? But they have the video village where the director and the producer sit yeah. with big, huge screens in front of them with headphones on of the actual what's being recorded. And then they direct from inside the video village. Didn't even ask them. They had five chairs right in front of the screens with headphones so that we could watch this one shot all morning long, break for lunch, one shot all afternoon long, right? And because you watch it over yeah. and over because they're doing all the different takes and different directions and all this. So we sit down there and it turns out in the movie, it's the morning after Mackenzie's first night where he's had nightmares. You know, he had a flying dream and then boom, he's down into the muck and he's trying, he sees Missy and the abductor and he's trying to run to catch up, but his feet won't work. And, mm. and so he wakes up out of this turmoil and he comes out onto the porch and that's where the scene begins. He walks out onto yeah. the porch for breakfast, Papa singing, only love can break your heart. You know, you like Neil Young? It's okay. I'm especially fond of him. Yeah. And he sits down. Is there anybody you're not especially fond of? Nope, not that I can think of. Well, what about your wrath? And it starts this conversation about, you know, and at one point, Papa turns to him and says, Mackenzie? Now we're watching this, right? Yeah. I'm at one end, Brad's at the other end, and uh, Lori and, and Eden and um, Dwight are in the middle, right? And we're watching. We're watching this being shot. And Papa says, Mackenzie? The fundamental flaw in your life is that you don't believe that I'm good. I wow. am. And I'm at wow. work for good and everything you consider to be a mess. But until you believe that I'm good, you're never going to be able to trust me. And he says, why would I ever trust I you? This. My oh. daughter is dead. Oh. And there's nothing you can do to change it. Gets up, smashes no. the glass off the table and walks off. Cut, reset. Watch oh my it again. Gosh. How many times? 10 to 15 times over the course what of the What were morning. they doing when they're watching the scene? Well, the first the first one, they're just in shock. I'm kind of glancing over there like, <gasps> the breath has gone out of the room, you know? And it's just yeah. like, oh my, of all the scenes to see, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh. So about the fourth time, Lori gets up and walks out of the tent and I just follow her out and she just collapses in my arms and begins just to, to just heave sob, yeah. you know? And then she goes back in. To watch it again. Wow. Watch the fundamental flaws. You don't believe that I'm good. Why would I ever trust you? My daughter is dead over and over and oh over. We break for lunch and overcomes Octavia and wraps them up in her arms and overcomes Sumi, the Holy Spirit, and overcomes Aviv and hugs and loves on him. Wow. Right. And then we, after lunch, we go back and sit in Video Village for the second shot. And in the movie, it's where Mackenzie and Papa have just had this massive conversation in the kitchen about nail scars on her wrists, yeah. you know, and uh, he goes, he leaves and he's sitting on the porch and he's just 
again in turmoil and and papa comes out and says see that bird you know and they're talking about the bird in the tree that bird was created to fly you were created to live love but sometimes pain has a way of clipping your wings so that you forget you were ever created to fly mm. why did you bring me here because here's where you got stuck <laughs> This is your flying lesson. We're bawling. Oh my gosh. Right? We're just, and we watch it over and over and over. And at the end of the day, they're hugging me goodbye and, and they're going like, you have no idea. No. And I said, I don't. But I'm thinking like, look, Lionsgate didn't have to ask me to come back. Yeah. I didn't have any rights or creative control, but they just decide they would like me back right here, right now. And, oh, I get a nudge to contact Brad. And not only is he in the country, he's walking in the woods up near Cultus Lake. And while we're emailing, he runs into the set location that I end up at. Yeah. And he's with his friends who have this great sadness and this tragedy and they're stuck. Yeah. And they get invited on set and they get to sit in Video Village. And these are the scenes that we get to watch shot. And it got them unstuck. So right. So while we're playing checkers, God's playing three-dimensional chess. Yeah. Right. And and we get to participate. Yeah. Right? This is not a God who uses anybody. God has never used anybody ever. This is a God who invites participation because this God has never done anything alone and who wow. submits to what we bring to the table, right? So in the course of us playing checkers and the next step in front, here God is weaving as a redeeming genius healing for broken hearts, right? Yeah. So what mattered more that day, the film that was shot or what was going on in human hearts while the film was being shot. Yeah. You know? Well, turns out that both matter. Yeah. Right? But for very different reasons. And uh, and it was like, oh my goodness. And so Lori started a gathering called The Grand Embrace. Because oh, wow. when she walked onto the set, the first thing I did was hug her and didn't let her go. Right. Until I felt, and she was mad. I could feel it inside. You know? And she was <laughs> so, loving a mad person. too. Yeah. And so she, know. she started this gathering called the grand embrace. Wow. It got her unstuck. Brad Jerzak speaks at it. I speak at it. It's just this beautiful thing that is all about encounter that and, is so and awesome. the process of wholeness. Yeah. You Thanks don't know sharing. the ripple effects, right? You don't. And I think that's one of the beauties of hearing these stories because there's the creative process, but there's a God process. And there's so many spinoff stories. Yeah. But if we'll just be obedient and just be us, you yeah. know, there's so many spinoff stories of how our little lives get to have so much significance to him and to others. It's beautiful. That's why eternity will take so long. For we're, sure. We're going to unwind those oh. threads and find out where they actually I always are. tell everybody, I'm going to watch your life with love, with Jesus in heaven, like people watch Netflix And we're now. going to go and meet every person. Okay, this is yeah. where this person was praying who you didn't even know. Yes. Right? And we're going to go talk to her. Yeah. And find out what was going on in her thread and what was traveling yeah. through her world. Yeah. That's going to be awesome. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, completely love being on the show. Thank you. Wow. Well, thanks for watching. I'm so stuck here. I didn't even know you were with us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Exploring the Industry, our brand new podcast. And it's actually part of the podcast family of the Exploring the Prophetic. If you subscribe now, you're going to hear weekly stories on Wednesdays that are everyday people like you and I who are hearing God and God is changing our options. He's changing our world. He's transforming culture around us because we're saying yes and obedience to God. And then on Fridays, we have Exploring the Industry. So make sure to subscribe and you're going to hear these amazing stories 
twice a week. And we need these stories right now. I know if, if you're like me, you need the encouragement. So come join the conversation. Thank you for listening to Exploring the Industry. We're believing that God's going to change the world through the entertainment industry. And we want to invite you into the conversation. Please subscribe, hit the notification bell to this podcast. Also visit us at bowlsministries.com where you're going to find tons of resources to help you on your spiritual journey.